0: Howdy. This is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Alexander Biner, co-founder of Rebel Wisdom, a very interesting and useful uh, video journalism uh, organization, and they also do uh, event planning and event uh, operations. So uh, check them out, Rebel Wisdom, uh, on the web, on YouTube, I guess, is where most of your material is, right, uh, Alexander?
1: Yeah, that's correct, yeah, uh, on YouTube. But we also just read after our website so, you, so people can find all, all of our films and articles and events on, our, on rebelwisdom.co.uk now.
0: And as usual, links to uh, Rebel Wisdom will be on the episode page uh, for this episode at jimruttshow.com. Uh, in this current episode, uh, we're going to focus on Alexander's recent medium essay titled Indigenous Narcissism. Though as we usually do on current episodes, uh, God knows where we may go. Uh, uh, so uh, welcome, Alexander. Thank you. It's really good to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me on yeah, it should be fun. Uh, you know, you start off by saying, uh, that, you know, we really can't blame social media for everything that's going on. Uh, and I absolutely agree with you. And, and you know, in reality, of course, uh, social media is just a, an artifact, an engine, a machine, and it has to interact with a culture. And it no doubt interacts with different cultures in different ways. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you then, uh, Hop into talking about Joe Henrich and his idea of weirdness, uh, which is uh, yeah. essentially our culture. Talk about weirdness a little bit.
1: Yeah, weirdness. A so weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So that's really, you know, as you said, uh, you know, that's certainly the culture I come from. Um, let's, you know, to put it simply. Although I, I know some people would have issue with the phrase, but let's say Western countries. Uh, but it's not just Western countries. Um, but, but largely, actually, no. That's I'd say largely that's accurate. And uh, it's interesting. So you know, they not just Henrik, but some some other psychologists around ten years ago, um, maybe a little bit before that, they started noticing that a lot of psychology papers that were coming out were based on the responses, and you know, the subjects of those papers were uh, Western undergraduates. Uh, and if not undergraduates, certainly people from a certain, uh, let's say, weird demographic, and then those results were extrapolated out um, and and seen uh, very often seen as psychological universals. And the argument he makes, and many others have made, and you know, um, Jonathan Haidt has used the weird uh, terminology and framing um, pretty extensively as well. Uh, yeah, the, the argument they're making is that we're pretty specific in the way we think, um, and if you take a kind of Let's say a reverse reverse anthropology look and look back at ourselves. We have a number of qualities um, that are unique to to us, uh, unique to our specific culture, which is no surprise because cultures uh, differ and they've adapted to different environments and different situations. And so, one of the um, one of the defining features of weird culture is that we are very focused on ourselves and our own attributes, um, our own achievements. Uh, it's important usually that we have a sense of um, consistency across time as, as who we are. You know, when, when we see people, um, let's say like politicians, you know, changing their minds, we, we look at it as kind of flip-flopping. Um, when we see someone behave quite differently to the way they've normally behaved, um, we, we often question, you know, who are they really? What What's a real motivation? And that, that whole, you know, he goes into this, even that whole idea of, of determining justice, for example, based on the intention someone had, as well as what actually happened. That's quite a, a weird thing as well. Um, so I find Henrik's uh, model really, really useful as well, because a lot of things that we take for granted uh, about ourselves and the way we see the world uh, aren't, aren't necessarily uh, cultural constants uh, across the world. So he points out that, um, you know, another defining aspect of weird culture is that we don't have the same kind of allegiance to uh, kind of close-knit kin groups. So for example, um, your, your clan or your wider family where you have a, a really dispersed network of cousins and uncles and aunts and the way you move through the world uh, is really um, determined in large part by, by your, your relationship within that whole Network of relationships, and also then the like the embedded obligations that you have. You know, as an oldest daughter, you might have uh, certain obligations. As a, as a third son, whatever it might be, and so we, uh, because of a few reasons that he goes into in detail, um, one of which was um, uh, the Catholic Church declaring that we couldn't marry our cousins several hundred years ago. Uh, which I think is pretty rich of the, the Catholic Church, uh, but <laughs> considering what they've done since. But um, the, you know, that really changed the dynamics of European culture, as did the Protestant Reformation, which encouraged a huge uptake in literacy because people were encouraged to have their own personal relationship with God, and that meant and um, you know, have your own connection to the Bible as well. So that meant you kind of had to read. Um, <clears throat> that and a number of other factors meant that we became a lot more atomized, and we also started. Leaving where we grew up, you know, I'd be curious to hear, or just curious to know, like how many people listening to this live in the town and with the family that they grew up with. You know, it's it's much more common for us to leave and go somewhere else, um, and because of that, we have um, uh, developed much more of a sense of voluntary association. He calls it so. This sense that. Um, that basically we choose what group to join. We, we're not necessarily wedded to being kind of in our clan or our family. You know, you could you could leave your town or a village and then end up joining a guild, and maybe that guild became much more much more of a part of your identity than than necessarily your your brothers or sisters and, and parents. You know, and likewise, um, uh, uh, he talks about impersonal prosociality that developed. So that's basically. Even when you study now, when you study weird people, uh we are nice, we're pretty nice to strangers. That's kind of why Borat works, uh, to some degree. We are we give people the benefit of the doubt and we tend to be more generous in thought experiments where um, for example, you you know, you play a lot of game theory with people and you know you don't know what the other person's gonna give, and you you know, you get people to place different bets on situations. We we tend to uh, kind of give people the benefit of doubt. And part of the reason is the last thing I'll say about uh, kind of his weird model. One of the reasons of that, and what I found particularly interesting and that I looked at in the piece, is that we have outsourced our trust to big institutions. So as soon as you leave, you know, if you're in a kin group, if you're in like a clan, you don't, your trust system is there and it's maintained by lots of different social pressures and shame, for example, um, but also a sense of belonging. You know, you belong to this group or this land that you all belong to. Whereas we we don't have that. We have a different kind of belonging, and we have a different way of making sure that we can trust each other when we're, um, you know, in a city of say a million people. And a major part of that is that, uh, particularly a few hundred years ago, we were able to outsource the that trust to say the church, for example, or to the state to know that, like. You and me might be different. You and I might be different people, Jim. But you know, if we were, uh, you know, back then or even now, there are certain values that I can safely assume that you hold. Um, that I can assume you hold without really having met you, um, and th- that's quite like deep in deep in our cultural wiring. Um, Henrik and others would argue. So that that is a yeah. I'll stop there on on the explanation of weird because I think it. It, you know, it raises a whole bunch of different interesting um, lines of inquiry about the place we find ourselves in here and now.
0: Yeah, indeed. I uh, recently read the book and was quite taken with it. Uh, and it was particularly interesting, uh, this idea that something as seemingly obscure as the Catholic Church banning cousin marriage, and for a while they banning, banned as far as out as third or fourth cousin marriage. They eventually retreated back to principally uh, banning first and sometimes second Uh, cousin marriage, but it's quite interesting how that propagates on the network and breaks down large-scale clans as uh, a possible way to organize a society. Uh, And at least I don't recall in the book uh, that uh, Joe had any uh, theory on why the Catholic Church did it. Was it just a frozen accident for some reason? That was some interpretation of theology? Uh, I don't believe he uh, claimed that the Catholic Church did it intentionally to break down you know family clannishness and so that's kind of one of the things i like about uh, evolutionary uh, perspective is eventually you realize that uh, evolution whether it's biological or cultural is to a significant degree a series of frozen accidents if you ran the tape a second time it might have come out differently uh, but in this case that particular decision uh, may well have produced these uh, this weird culture that uh, uh, joe speaks about and speaking of which, uh, I have invited Joe onto our show, and he's going to be uh, doing an episode in January. So, those who want to know more about uh, weirdness and his book "Weirdest People in the World," um, you know, tune in in probably February for the episode. So, yeah, and so indeed, uh, you know, from way back, certainly by the late Middle Ages, uh, more and more people in the West uh, were organizing around voluntary organizations and. You know I think quite famously de Tocqueville's book Democracy in America uh, you know this trend probably happened most rapidly in America since we never had feudalism here uh, lots of people came over as individuals or nuclear uh, families and left their uh, extended families to the degree they had them back in Europe etc and uh, you know that was sort of a characteristic particularly of America which then spread back out to the rest of the world as the uh, you know, kind of the American system of uh, formal definition of rights and, you know, uh, formal ways of adjudicating processes, though most of that came from the English common law, uh, you know, uh, became essentially, uh, you know, how, how things were done across much of the West, though adapted to local situations. And alas, and this is interesting, that the, into uh, a significant degree, formal voluntary institutions. Uh, uh, institutions have been in a decline for quite a long while. Uh, you know, perhaps most famously, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. It used to be people belonged to bowling leagues uh, a lot. Now, a much larger percentage of the bowling is either people bowling al- alone or a couple of friends or what have you. And so those, uh, those sort of micro institutions um, aren't what they used to be. Uh, And there used to be, you know, uh, again, in the States, I don't know about the rest of the world, there used to be a whole bunch of voluntary organizations like the Elks Club and the Moose. And, you know, they provided some uh, economic insurance. You know, in other words, if you died, your kids would be taken care of, essentially insurance type uh, policies. And again, those have been in long-term decline in the West and uh, has been very little to take their place. And uh, into this void comes social media and, uh, you know, and its engine of optimization to, uh, essentially, fig- force you into a tribe whether you want to or not. Now, talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this is the w- one of the points I was exploring uh, in the essay is that. So what what it really what really strikes me about that particular weird psychology is is how it relates to our sense of belonging, you know. And it's the, what I so you know I, as you mentioned, I make the point that we can't lay all of the problems that we're facing at the You know, the feet of the Silicon Valley tech companies, although, of course, the technologies they've created are very destructive combined with a particular void, the void of, well, you know, some people would have called it it the void of meaning, but certainly there's a void of belonging because, as you mentioned, the major institutions that we were outsourcing our trust to aren't trustworthy anymore. And not only are they not trustworthy, but they don't really work very well. Um, in many many cases, hence hence a proliferation of of people looking to find ways to do things better and in a more sustainable way. So the so I'm particularly interested in the, how, how that plays out on social media because you know social media is sort of like voluntary association on crack. It's like it, you join different tribes. You know Peter Lindbergh has talked about mimetic tribes. You know these different tribes that have proliferated online and they each have a different value system and they're all fighting for some aspect of the narrative. And there's, you know, there's many of them and there seem to be more every day. So this is kind of war for narratives of belonging. And social media is the battleground where that takes place and they certainly profit off of it. But that war, that that void of belonging, I think is so much deeper than uh, that that. We would have a problem without social media, let's say um in the same way that you know so the social dilemma talk the, the film that that came out on Netflix um, talks a lot about the addictive quality of social media and the way they're hijacking um, our nervous systems and and kind of hijacking our dopamine systems now a few people recently have written critiques of that a few psychologists um, critiques of the the and biologists of the nature of addiction and the nature of the dopamine system and whether how true that actually is but just leaving that to one side um, that, that process of um, that addiction, it, it, there has to be something underneath driving it. In the same way that alcoholism isn't caused by alcohol, it's caused by underlying trauma and it's caused by many different developmental factors, situational factors. So, it's kind of a perfect storm, I think. And that, and I think drilling down into belonging and how we perceive belonging is is key because if if we if we ignore the fact that we have evolved, or certainly our culture has evolved to belong to different um, voluntary associations and to have a have a sense of agency on the individual where we have to choose where to belong. when we lose trust in those institutions, uh, then we we it's not just something that's happening around us. It's not just an external reality. It's actually, I would argue it's happening within us, and it's an internal psychological um, process and a psychological process of deep fear and dislocation, which makes people, I think, much more susceptible to and ready to fall prey to misinformation, to to join um, anything that resembles something that might give them a sense of belonging and and identity. And, of course, we've seen, like, you know, the last, let's say, five or ten years the, the whole cultural and political conversation has become completely immersed with and obsessed with identity, and I think there's a relationship there as well this this kind of collapse of having fixed identity
0: yeah yeah and uh, you know it manifests on uh, in this new uh, this new world where weird culture with its breakdown of or never you know, five hundred years worth of dissolving of uh, uh, clan based uh, type relationship and then this uh decay of uh, the kind of fractal structure of voluntary organizations, which used to be, uh, especially in America, uh, you know, the cornerstone of what we uh, what we relied upon. Instead, uh, that leaves a huge void, just a screaming need for some form of group uh, that had some coherence, even if it's around nonsense, you know, hence the Uh, you know, uh, the rapid growth of ridiculous stuff like QAnon, anti-vaxxerism, flat earth, et cetera. You go, holy shit. You know, but if you use the lens of uh, weirdness plus uh, the hyper-optimization of uh, uh, social media, it kind of makes sense. You know, in Social Dilemma, I think one of the great lines was, uh, you know, they are using more computational power uh, than the uh, deep blue chess machine uh, that beat uh, Karpov back in the 90s. Uh, they're using that uh, to drive your behavior on social media based on a whole sp- series of low-level signals. And uh, you know, the emergent result is uh, pushing people who are lost, essentially, because they aren't anchored uh, in uh, trustworthy institutions to form institutions. Uh, the, there's an attractor towards any institution or any group that kind of feels a little bit like an institution. And you know, that's a, a very dangerous situation uh, that we're in. In your essay, you asked us to do uh, some experiments, and uh, I think the third one uh, you asked us to do, and I actually did it, was shut your eyes and try to find an institution you deeply trust. You know, as people who listen to the show regularly know, I live on a farm deep in Appalachia in a, one of the lowest population density counties east of the Mississippi, and one that has a surprising amount of social intactness. And so when I did that experiment, what did I come up with? I came up with the uh, Maple Festival Committee, the biggest event in our county, uh, the Sheriff's Department, Volunteer Fire Department, and our County Fair Association. Uh, Those are very trustworthy organizations. You know, I know the people who head them. I know their process. And I know the fact that uh, uh, they do what they do well. And have been doing it for, uh, you know, anywhere between, uh, you know, Sheriff's Department goes back. 150 years uh even the maple festival is now uh, uh 70 years old and uh, but note note that's what's not on the list anything at a higher level than our local oh. county uh and and I'm kind of uh, I think fortunate and unusual in being a, in a place where uh the life of a community of 2200 people which is the total population of our county is still healthy and intact uh but as you point out when you're in a city of a million uh, those structures have long since disappeared and have been blended into the kind of chaos of life in the city. And there really isn't much that replace has replaced it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. That's what I was thinking when you were talking. You know, that the the local scale and the fact that you know the people. I mean, is such a huge factor. Um, you know, one one exception that I don't personally feel necessarily, but my my wife pointed out is the National Health Service, the NHS in the UK. Has probably a level of trust that no other institution does, certainly in this country, and uh, it's it's far from perfect. But it's um, it's interesting, you know. I'm just reflecting on on why that is, and I mean, there's a bunch of cultural reasons, but one of them is that it's you know it's uh, sort of socialized healthcare, and it's not subject to market forces and market capture in the same way that a lot of other institutions are, like the media, for example. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and a, good, a great point. I mean, this is one I wanted to, to make, that when we don't have these institutions of trust, uh, and at the same time, and we'll talk about this, how uh, postmodernism and some of its uh, related theories have impacted this ecosystem, uh, when the idea of virtue ethics has been undermined, what do you expect to result but game theory let loose, right? That's, I think, uh, you know, the game B synthesis at its deepest uh, is if you're not Uh, constraining a society in relationships and obligations and trustworthy people, and you've undermined the concept of virtue ethics, Uh, of course, game theory is going to run amok. And uh, what is late game A, but game theory run extensively amok. And, uh, you know, lacking these, uh, you know, these uh, large scale institutions and small scale and medium scale, mesoscale institutions, uh, very little to resist it. And it's an interesting point that, something like the National Health Service in the UK, or let's say the military in the U.S., which relative, always ranks at the top of trustworthy organizations at the national scale, uh, neither of them are subject to uh, you know, economic-driven money-on-money return game theory. And that may be an important part of why they retained at least uh, uh, a much greater level of trust than, say, the legislature or the executive or, uh, unfortunately, even the courts.
1: It's an interesting point. Uh, something you know, you just mentioned um, the role of postmodernism. Uh, I'd love to pick up on that because it just it reminds me of something that, uh, uh, that came to me uh, a couple of days ago. It's not in the essay, but um, so I'm not sure if you, how familiar you are. Jim, with uh, Mich- I'm sure you know Michel Foucault, but I'm not sure how much of his, his work you might have delved into. But um, his probably his most famous book, Discipline and Punish, or one of his most famous ones. What is, I think, striking about that uh, in terms of what we're discussing is that, so he talks about, and this is, you see this same or very similar idea played out in the uh, sort of intersectional narratives and identity politics that we're seeing now, he talks about power being sort of ever-present and running through everything and everyone and the world, you know, looking at the world through a kind of lens of power relations, but very specifically, he he encourages people to look at institutions as the apparatus of power. So he's like, if you want to look at the kind of the source of it, you look to the institutions. And so there's been years of people looking to in some way deconstruct institutions because institutions have been seen as inherently oppressive, and the and the apparatus through which Power is exercised. So this is something I'm I particularly interested in because I see it come up a lot in in the kind of you know in, in different groups who want to uh, change the world in some way. Or I guess I think you refer to it as the what next space, you know. And I've been involved in those kind of circles, various types of those circles, um, for I don't know, 10, 15 years. And it really strikes me that there is a, an underlying assumption that institutions need to be either destroyed or deconstructed. Very often, that's present. And you know what I think. Uh, what I think the weird model kind of shows uh, or, or suggests is that that process of deconstruction. Leaves an incredible void that potentially destroys us. I mean, that's the kind of, it's a truism. You know, you can't deconstruct without, uh, replacing with something else. And very often the, 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 uh, the impulse is simply to deconstruct. But I think it has its root, not roots, not only, but certainly has its roots in, in, uh, postmodern thinking that uh, the whole idea of institutions being that place where power is being exercised and and we got to do something about it in some way.
0: Yeah, I, I agree and that, uh, you know, net-net uh, postmodernism is, uh, uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, a net, on balance, uh, a relatively negative uh, vector in our current space. And certainly in our Game B world, uh, we're uh, well focused on the fact that we need institutional structures and that the way you draw people into behavior is essentially a coevolution of institutions and upgrading the uh, capacity and sovereignty of the individual. But if you forget about institutions and you assume that they're always corrupt, you ain't going to build shit. Right? Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, postmodernism. I've, uh, I, you know, I have not read uh, the original sources, but I've read a lot of the secondary sources and commentaries. And what I've decided is that talking about postmodernism with a broad brush is less helpful than decomposing it. Let's say deconstructing it into, uh, five components. Uh, f- uh, first, uh, postmodernism actually started as an arts movement, uh, a form of aesthetics, uh, one built, uh, principally around irony and re- uh, resuscitating some older forms and merging them with, uh, modernism. And, you know, you you know, like any, uh, uh, later forms of artistic expression, uh, one can have some opinions about whether it's good or bad. And, you know, my, my book, I put it in the intermediate range, not as bad as some shit, not as good as the old classics, right? Uh, second is the, uh, uh, postmodern condition. That's, you know, here's the cartoon version, you know, some dude playing video games in his parents' basement at the age of 32, uh, rather than engaging the world and going out and having sex, right? Boudoir's, uh simulation stack, essentially. People deep in the simulation are people who are stuck in the postmodern condition. And, you know, my view is that that's bad and that what comes next needs to seduce people out of the postmodern condition and get them engaged with the world, you know, feeling the soil under their feet, knowing how to change the oil on their car, knowing how to, uh, do, uh, romantic relationships in a decent fashion, you know, all the things that really make you human and pull people back out of the postmodern condition. Uh, next, uh, you know Hansi Freynek, who's been on the show three times, and I've made uh, you know good personal connection with the folks uh, behind that. Uh, they put forth uh, the idea of postmodern values, uh, things like cosmopolitanism, tolerance, etc. I push back on that a little bit. To, m- to my mind, those are Enlightenment values. And uh, you now the, the the useful point of postmodernism, where I where I don't condemn postmodernism outright, is that. Uh, While things like uh, cosmopolitanism and tolerance and interest in other cultures, you know, go back and read Diderot, Voltaire, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, uh, uh, they've been there since early in the Enlightenment. However, they have been constrained and deformed by hypocrisy. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is an Enlightenment guy to the bone, right? Uh, Very cosmopolitan. But he was also a slave owner. What the fuck, right? Right. Uh, And at the time of the founding of the uh, United States Constitution, you know, not only were uh, black people and Indians uh, prevented from voting, but women too. And uh, in many states, people that didn't own property. Uh, So if one takes some of the postmodernist perspective and uses it to hold the Enlightenment's feet to the fire to live up to the Enlightenment values, and then you can say perhaps that postmodern values are Enlightenment values that have been purged of their hypocrisy. And that would be good. So there's a good something nice to say about postmodernism. The next I call the postmodern stance. And that's, I think, what people think of when they think of postmodernists, you know, these uh, people who argue that a witch doctor is no different than Johns Hopkins Hospital or that, you know, are anti-science or that don't understand that science is a fundamentally different way of knowing than anything that ever came before. Uh, And, you know, producers of Uh, what are essentially religious uh, statements like critical race theory that uh, explicitly reject empiricism uh, as a way to investigate their domain. And in fact, uh, argue that the use of empiricism to criticize something like critical race theory uh, makes one a racist oneself, you know, very similar to, uh, you know, uh, late medieval Catholicism, uh, where any kind of questioning of this intricate, unfalsifiable, uh, tangled web of doctrine was itself sinful and very much opposed to that. Uh, and then finally, the tools, you know, for instance, deconstruction is literally a tool, uh, uh, was used often to deconstruct literary works, and can be very useful there. And to the, great, to the degree we can use deconstruction softly and in good faith uh, to find the hypocrisies uh, in our institutions and uh, purge them of that, it's useful to the degree that everything you see is the lens of deconstruction and all you do is destroy. That's fucked up. I mean, that you know ends up with uh, moral nihilism essentially. And, you know, that's happened, uh, you know, more than, more than we might like.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots to pick up on in there. I mean, one, one thing that comes up for me is the like, yes, there, there is use to both the values and to the, the deconstruction because it, it, it it shakes up rigid structures, and, and ideally, at its best, if done correctly, opens out the margins of our thought and brings in new perspectives that that wouldn't have been allowed in previously. But it it's also has the quality of being perpetual if it's not um, if it's not done well. By which I mean, <clears throat> if you continuously deconstruct, you get into this kind of perpetual deconstruction with loads of full of Kafka traps and impossible, impossible, illogical situations. And some of the early postmodernists, like uh, Francois Lyotard, talked about this concept of the sublime, which being really important in deconstruction, because the sublime is the point, you know, comes from romantic poetry, you know, several hundred years before they were talking, but the sublime is the point at which, you know, you walk out into nature and your language just fails you. It's awe-inspiring, and words, you're just in this kind of moment in which all of the classification and categorization fails. And they talked about the, you know, some of them talked about the importance of that in terms of this postmodern deconstruction. And, and what they meant, uh, or, or one of the things they meant was that you have to have some kind of fixed um, point at which all of that deconstruction is is irrelevant. You know, you have to have something certain, some, some groundedness. And, you know, you talked about that a second ago, you know, like the difference between the postmodern condition and then actually just going out and living life and being kind of immersed in the world. And... You know, I, I think there's a huge tension in a lot of people around that. You know, the the phrase "indigenous narcissism" uh, came to me, popped into my head. I was at a festival at the end of the summer in the UK, and it was called Medicine Festival. Um, you would have hated it, Jim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Goddamn hippies! <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was yeah, and it was uh, you know they had. Um, they had made a big um, effort and uh, talked a lot about having lots of, including lots of indigenous voices, and th- they had some people up on stage, um, some indigenous people. I mean, uh, setting aside what the you know how complex and problematic the phrase indigenous is, like what exactly does it mean and whos is and isn't isn't indigenous. But as I was watching it, I was thinking that there's something off here, and the phrase indigenous narcissism just kind of popped into my head, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I wonder what that means. You know, there's something something in that. It felt very much about... about There, there was a certain kind of fixation on the self uh, and a kind of um, a falseness to it for me. But part of it was that... Uh, and this kind of returns to the weird aspect of it. It's like people have an urge to connect and belong and to feel part of something. And a lot of people, um, especially in that community want to feel more deeply connected to nature, which, which I completely celebrate and I think is, is, is vital. It's also universal, that, that kind of transcends culture. So it's, it's kind of a clean way for people to connect um, and is, is essentially, I think, very, very important. But <clears throat> they're doing it through the lens of, we should be more like indigenous people very often. And that is a massive problem because uh, indigenous communities are kin-based So all of the the non-weird stuff that we're just not used to and doesn't kind of uh, fit into our culture. But the other thing is that they are deeply connected to a particular land. You know, we've both spoken to to Tyson Yunkaporta and he speaks really eloquently about, you know, Australian Aboriginal culture and and how how the land is, is, I mean, there's a psychogeography of kind of understanding and deep wisdom that's kind of embedded and encoded in people's understanding and connection to the land. And I was thinking like, What does it actually look like if we start saying, say, in Europe, I want to feel connected to the land? Well, firstly, it's very unpostmodern, and it it creates a huge amount of cognitive dissonance that these communities aren't talking about, because it's like, saying that means that you have to raise all sorts of questions about, well, firstly, private ownership of land is a pretty essential part of our culture. So if I say I'm deeply connected to this land, does the dude who was... Uh, owns the land the festival was on? Does he sort of mediate or kind of own me in turn? You know, the, the ridiculous questions start coming up. And then equally, the sense of belonging that we are looking for through that connection is um, it, it's hugely problematic because basically that is something the far right did or still does extensively. And so while I think it's very important to be connected to land, there's this kind of tension in those communities where people want it, but they don't quite want to say it. And then they kind of want to talk about, so what they end up doing is they talk about other people's connection to land and try and sort of, um, try and bypass and, and have that connection for themselves. So I found the, the whole, that whole dynamic of, of what comes up. Um, yeah, really interesting.
0: Yeah, that's a, yeah, I read that. That was very, it was indeed interesting. I had the same thought I go,
1: Hmm,
0: uh, you know, one could interpret this as kind of like blood and land fascism, right? Uh, uh, you know the uh, nasty uh, uh, one of the nasty drivers behind Nazism. You know yeah. Lebensraum. You know we are going to grab the land from those other people. This is our land, right? Uh, on the other hand, and this this is to my mind, this is where it gets really interesting. And you talk about some of the uh, new movements, the new tribes that are forming up, and uh, one of which you mentioned was our uh, Game B group. And uh, I think one of the things that Uh, at least my version of game B and one of the strange and interesting things about game B is there are no authorities. Anyone can say whatever they want about game B. And so they're uh, there. It's not yet highly coherent, but it has a kind of a core of coherence, uh, is that, uh, you know, my perspective is that there are uh, definitely things that can be taken from these perspectives, but one shouldn't adopt them hook, line, and sinker. For instance, uh, you know, reverence for the land, uh, can be relatively contingent in a time and a place. So let's say, for instance, 150 people get together to establish a proto-bee or a civium, which is uh, our form of thinking about an intentional community, which is getting pretty advanced. and is getting pretty close to happening. I expect we'll have uh, at least three proto-bees uh, up and running by the end of 2021. Uh, May even have one this year. No, it probably won't get done this year, but it's getting close. Uh, And so, you know, that would, such an entity would buy a chunk of land, let's call it 100 hectares, something like that, 200 acres uh, plus. And so that group of people will have a referential uh, relationship to that piece of land as long as that community exists. And uh, yet, we don't say we're going to, uh, you know, dedicate our uh, future to this particular parcel forever. Uh, and if time comes up that there's a better piece of land that we can get somewhere else, we'll move there. Right. And uh, you know, a good example, I like to uh, tell people about are the Mennonites, uh, interestingly, the ruts were Mennonites a long, long time ago. Fortunately, the, my particular branch had the good sense to give that shit up in the 19th century and interbred with a bunch of Irish Catholics and now consider themselves Irish Catholics, even though they're really about half German Mennonite. Oh, well, well, you know, America is wonderful. Uh, but I live in an area with lots of Mennonites, and, uh, you know, they have a tight-knit community uh, based on land. Uh, but uh, when the time comes that, uh, you know, for instance, over in the Shenandoah Valley, not, you know, maybe an hour and a half s drive from our farm, land prices spiked, uh, during the big, uh, real estate bubble in the double aughts. And many of the Mennonites sold this now overpriced land and moved West into the mountains and bought land for a third the price. And so, uh, something like 10% of the people, uh, here in our County, and uh, in deep in the mountains are now Mennonites. It's quite interesting. So, uh you know, what, what What I suggest on around building these neat new tribes is, uh, you know, don't be doctrinaire and ideological. Be pragmatic. Find what works and realize that there is probably not one design, and you point out, uh, situationally based. If one were to build a proto-bee in a major city, it's going to look very different than one built deep in Appalachia, which is going to look very different on one built on uh, farmland, say uh, fifty miles out from a major city. So, uh, you know, don't be doctrinaire. Uh, look at all kinds of things, right? You mentioned uh, Tyson Yonca Porta. Uh It's become a good personal friend of mine. Has been on the uh, the Jim Rutt show three times. Very interesting episodes, and uh, he has some very interesting uh, ideas that come out of uh, uh, endogenous cultures. Uh, but you know, you and he would agree that you don't want to adopt endogenous cultures uh, in Toto. One takes some of the ideas and some of the learnings and combine them with other lenses. You know What I love about his work is he combines two what seem to be uh, utterly different lenses. One's an endogenous lens and one's a complexity science lens. Uh, another one one that I happen to resonate with pretty uh, carefully. And he comes up with some very interesting insights. And uh, I, st- I think he's still thinking about what are the implications about what is useful from an endogenous lens. Uh, when combined with a complexity lens uh, that are relevant uh, to a world with 8 billion people on it. Unfortunately, uh, (laughs) this is the one I like to point out to people who say, oh, we should go back to the indigenous ways. Well, yeah, well, as long as you don't mind about uh, 99% of the population dying off rather horribly, uh, you could do that, but uh, alas, we're too far along for that. We uh, need to be pragmatists and look for ideas everywhere and not be afraid to build them inst- into institutions and interact with them as people who are undergoing transformation to higher levels of capacity and sovereignty and see what works.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree <clears throat> completely with that. And, you know, a useful metaphor I found is uh, actually borrowed from, from one of my uh, heroes, Terence McKenna, is, is to see culture as an operating system. And if you see culture as an operating system, then you can, can you can run other operating systems in in your your hardware, your, your brain, and that is, I mean, that's actually one of the reasons that uh, culture shock happens and is a real neurological phenomena because our brains are so designed to uh, adapt to the culture we're born into because that's the, we have to to survive. And if you go to a radically different culture, you have a physiological and emotional and psychological response of. Oh shit! I I don't know what is going on here, and I need to be really careful because I could use the wrong spoon, or I could look at someone the wrong way, and I might get, I might get shanked. You know, so, so that's what your brain is worried about, and so it takes a few days, or, or sometimes longer, to adjust. So, I'm particularly interested in in how we, you know, how we run multiple operating systems. So, you know, we can run um, Indigenous Wisdom 3.0, but we can't. But I think the problem comes when we try and get rid of uh, weird culture 2.1. Right? We we can't get rid of our of our cultural our base cultural operating system. It's just not doable because your brain is already it's too late. Your brain's already wired that way. Um, and I've seen that happen again and again in in various communities who who want to do things differently. And I so I think the approach you're talking about with that flexibility is a really great antidote to that because. It needs that flexibility and that the ability to hold multiple perspectives is, you know, that's a huge part of integral philosophy. And it's something I, b- I believe in very much. It's it's a uh, remedy to ideological fixation and also, which is something that kills pragmatism, you know. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So I think that's a really, yeah, I think it's a really key point.
0: Yeah, then, uh, I think we're in agreement on there, and, and that goes to uh, a part of your essay later on uh, where you, you, know, you know, essentially make that point in a kind of broad way, which is, hey, we're weird people, whether we like it or not, right? And I will say, uh, I would argue, weirdness is good, right? Uh, uh, for all the people to com- you know, complain, and yes, there have been hypocrisies on the Enlightenment uh, mission, but it's been a shitload better than anything else that ever happened before, uh, you know, uh, think about our uh, religious uh, founders like Moses and uh, Jesus and Muhammad. Uh, all three of them found slavery perfectly acceptable. Talk about slavery as if it was just part of the plumbing. Who finally uh, stepped up and got rid of slavery? It was the Enlightenment, the Brits originally, uh, and then it spread across the world very rapidly. And after probably 10,000 years of slavery being a significant institution in many societies, Uh, The world finally got freed of it in 1962 or three when Saudi Arabia finally abolished slavery, the last country on earth where it was legal. I think about the emancipation of women. Again, at least 10,000 years of patriarchy. And uh, a lot of anthropologists I know say, frankly, it's always been there, probably 200,000 years in most cultures. Uh, Amazingly, uh, weirdness, uh, the Enlightenment way, plus weirdness, which are kind of two similar but related things, uh, finally have started... And I think it's. And when people look back to the 20th century, I like to say this, it won't be the World War I, World War II, won't be atomic bombs, won't be landing on the moon, won't be the internet, won't even be the shipping container, which might have been the most significant technology of the 20th century. Uh, it'll be the emancipation of women starting around 1975, when it really became a real and sincere and deep thing. Enlightenment. Uh, w- uh, weirdness plus the Enlightenment uh, has produced a society which is far from perfect. And as our game B critique uh, uh, has, it uh, has a fundamental deep problem is that it cannot seem to stop this game theoretical cycle that's driving it over the cliff uh, and exhausting the capacity of, uh, you know, the earth to support uh, what we're doing and is uh, driving us as humans, you know, manifested currently by uh, machine learning driven advertising based uh, social media into a place of uh, where our sense making has broken down. But as I, as, you know, as I iterate, there's lots of good in our tradition and we shouldn't throw it all out by any means. And, uh, and you know, again, it's one of the things that uh, annoys me about wokeism. They somehow assume that uh, the West is bad, right? Uh, you know, the West is not perfect, but uh, it's a shitload better than anything that came before.
1: Yeah and you know this is a um, this is the point i often make is like uh, if you think it's really bad and i'm not by no means the only person to make this point but if, you, if if people think it's really bad in, in say a, in a western country it's like spend spend a few weeks in a in a country that really struggles and is at a different um, stage of development and and then decide which one you would prefer to live in you know it's 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 it's, it's but like of course it's not perfect and it, of course and we have a level of technology that means that we, you know, we have the ability to just basically completely wipe ourselves out, and it's unsustainable. It's, um, you know, we're 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 in the depths of a meaning crisis. There is a lot wrong, but as you said, there is a lot right, and that nuance of able being able to say yes and I think is the, is the key thing, and and it's something that I think a lot of um, a lot of communities could use uh, a, a little bit more of. You know, the the wokeism aspect of it is is almost kind of a fetishistic self-hatred and guilt um, and that's, uh you know the, in a, in a way like the very ability to have that kind of perspective on our own culture is is an aspect of our weirdness as well that kind of a bit, that that self-critiquing and the and the that conversation being allowed in in the commons and and you know even encouraged you know that's a, that's a pretty major thing you know that you weren't having that in a um you know, so China two thousand years ago, you didn't go to the emperor's court and be like, "Hey, I think we should deconstruct this place because I think it's really <laughs> impressive."
0: <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I'll give you a little story I tell uh, fairly frequently. I, as uh, listeners, know, uh, regular listeners know, I'm a been affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute for the last twenty years, the home of complexity science and lots of other interesting science. Uh, check them out at santafe.edu. Uh, but anyway, we have lots of anthropologists and archaeologists been affiliated with our uh, community. And as I've gotten to know a bunch of them, I always ask them this question once I get to know them. You know, you studied uh, people X somewhere either in time or in space. And uh, uh, what, was ch- what are the chances that in that society, uh, an obnoxious 17-year-old, and here I'm thinking of myself in some sense, uh, came up to the, uh, you know, the, uh, the elders in the community and said, you know, all that time and uh, effort we spend on the rain dance, you know, it might be a waste of time. Why don't we run the experiment by doing the rain dance in village A and not do the rain dance in village B for five years, measure the rainfall, and see if it makes a difference? And uniformly, 50 out of 50, these anthropologists and archaeologists said it would have been literally unthinkable uh, for that question to have even been asked.
1: (laughs) I love that example. Yeah, because I'm just trying. I'm just trying to picture it. Uh, it's it's even hard to picture just because of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, and that, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's some it's something that's that's key. Is like with with that ability to question comes a comes a responsibility and also a kind of uh, um, incumbent on the person questioning to have something else in place, which we've we've talked about before. That the having something else. After the deconstruction, so and you know, writing this essay and then kind of reading uh, Henrik's work and a few other things, it even changed my thinking a little bit about uh, institutions. I've kind of gone through a a process of toying with the idea of okay, what would it look like to build new institutions, you know? And then it's like that's pretty that's pretty difficult. And then the point I've came to, at least the point I'm at now, which which may well change, is the institutions, the legacy institutions are there. so how do we take them and, in, let's say, inject them with, with a deeper wisdom, um, with better processes, with better systems? And it's kind of one of the first times I'm, I'm exploring that more deeply and, and considering it, um, because some, there's some part of me that thinks that they're broken beyond repair. And there's, they're, they're no good. No, no good. We've got to fix them. And now now I'm sort of wondering, um, maybe the better and more strategically prudent um Process is to go, okay, we well, we've got to fix them. We've and and what does that look like? And that requires a lot of dedicated people within those institutions. I'm curious to hear what what, what your thoughts are on that dynamic, Jim.
0: Uh, it's kind of interesting. I was I was probably where you are now. Uh uh how many years ago, eight years ago, when we first started thinking about uh, the predecessors to game B, something called the Emancipation Party, and we laid out a platform. If you want to check it out, it's still online, emancipationparty.org. Uh and uh You know, we thought we could reform government and monetary systems and finance and uh, law enforcement uh, all in one big swoop. Yeah, we were uh, ridiculously uh, naive. Uh, And instead, I think our thinking is focused that uh, to get, it's not impossible in theory to change our existing institutions, but in practice, it's exceedingly difficult, again, for these game theoretical reasons. Uh, And I'd like to point people to what I believe to be the most important political science book ever written called The Logic of Collective Action by Monser Olson, uh, in which he uh, discusses in great uh, detail and with uh, some quasi-mathematical formality, uh, the fact that vested interests, i.e. concentrated interests, have both tactical and strategic advantages uh, against diffuse interests. You know, the, the two examples I like to use to communicate this idea is why is it that Comcast, which in the United States is this ugly monopolist cable TV company, uh, is able to manipulate the regulators at the city level to get higher and higher rates for worse and worse services uh, when the large community of people who, in theory, are democratically sovereign and can get their government to do what they want, uh, have no chance against Comcast. It's because their interests are very, very concentrated, and that gives a tactical and strategic advantage uh, versus uh, diffuse interest. And the other is, Uh, Why have the oil companies and coal companies had their ways uh, when clearly uh, their day is over and should be gradually phased out, again, for the same issue, uh, economic and uh, uh, political concentration uh, beats diffusion? Uh, So for those reasons, uh, at the moment, I am focusing on bottom up, uh, that let's get very clear and let's build and demonstrate a social operating system. And in the game B world, we literally call that the social operating system, the either we call it the social operating system or deep code, more or less the same idea. But let's do it at a small scale. And then let's build in from the beginning the fact that these small scale entities, let's call them uh, proto bees or civiums, uh, interact with each other on a network and then build their own uh, shadow economy and shadow governance uh, with each other gradually over time. And this is the important part, perfect these institutions because uh, I think the other thing that anyone who's experimenting with social operating systems need to needs to bring to the table is epistemic modesty. Uh, from my complexity science perspective of 20 years of learning there, I've understood that our ability to predict the unfolding of a complex system uh, is a shitload less than we think it is, particularly if we make major changes from uh, you know current underlying systems. Uh, I suspect uh, guys like Karl Marx uh, never imagined something like uh, Cambodia under Pol Pot, for instance, right? Uh, it, but it happened, right? And so uh, I think the other big advantage of starting bottom up uh, is the cost of being wrong are much uh, smaller. And the cycle times of experimentation in uh, high-dimensional phase space of design uh, it's much uh, less expensive. It takes a lot longer, a lot, lot less long uh, to say, okay, here was attempt A. It didn't work. Let's do attempt B. Let's modify the design, adapt better to local situations. Oh, shit, we didn't even consider this. Uh, let's try it again and, and do better. And so uh, personally, I'm in much increasing my emphasis on experimentation from the bottom up, but in a way that's eventually scalable all the way to the top. And, uh, you know, I wrote a paper called a journey to game B that if people are interested in at least a, a pencil sketch of how that might work, uh, on medium, I would encourage them to read it.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I, <clears throat> it's interesting to feel that, that that, kind of pull between those, those two different models. I think the model you just laid out or, or something similar to it is, is where I've spent most of my time sort of, uh, thinking about, um, and leaning towards, uh, it's, I guess the, um, I guess one major question is how those proto institutions, let's call them, or, you know, how how they manage to out, like that, that crux point when they start out competing the game A institutions. I'm particularly interested in that and interested in what they need to have in order to do that. And I think part of it, I mean, I, 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 yeah, part of it, and I think I've heard you say something kind of similar to this, is that, that it can't just be, pure game B in a sense of it's like a brand new thing. It's gotta have some grounding in game A. It's gotta use some of the tactics and dynamics uh, that make game A institutions and ways of doing things so successful. Um, And I, you know, so I think it's a very interesting question what what some of those are and how you play how you play with the devil's tools without getting sucked into then becoming yourself uh, another another kind of rivalrous institution that, that falls into all those dynamics.
0: Yeah, a, a lovely and key question. It actually goes back to the very beginnings, literally the day the idea of Game B was created at the whiteboard by a guy named Jordan Hall. Uh, and by the end of that day, we had already, a group of 20 of us or so, had already realized that uh, for Game B to be realistic and not just yet another uh, uh, millennia, uh, utopian idea, it had to be able, as part of its fundamental architecture, to parasitize, is the word we use, people still flinch at that word, parasitize game A by out-competing game A, at least in some and eventually growing uh, areas domain, uh, domain uh, using, uh, you know, game B methods, but out-competing game A in those domains. And I think we've been, a uh, fair amount of thinking's continued about that. I just had a Uh, four-hour conversation with Jordan Hall on the front porch of my farm, Uh, what day was that? Yesterday, shit, Uh, where we made considerable progress in uh, some formal institutional design, which might well uh, produce a homeostasis where a proto-bee uh, operates internally one way and has uh, significant but well-defined interfaces to game a uh, with the literal intent of outcompeting game a at its own game in uh, carefully selected uh, domains and over that time as game b gets bigger, and we get better at playing game B. and as I said, uh, early instantiations might actually not be quite right. Uh, we'll add to those domains where we can uh, successfully outcompete uh uh game a you know an example I threw out because it's just so cheesy and uh, low level is imagine a game B auto repair business uh you know if you deal with auto getting your car fixed man you can get screwed 15 ways from Sunday you know the service writer uh, you know claims shit's wrong with your car when it's not they say they're using original manufactured point uh, parts so, oh not actually true they got them from Chinese knockoffs or the junkyard and they charge you for the new part. There's pressure on the mechanics to buy as many parts as possible from the parts department. It's uh, an industry that's remarkably corrupt. Not in every case. I can say a couple of people I know that do a good job, but there's, uh, uh, at least in the United States, high level of corruption in the auto repair business. So suppose we started, uh, you know, each Proto B had as part of its uh, business, a game B auto repair business. That's completely honest. We'll never lie. We'll give you your parts back. We'll provide the, uh, Uh, you know, proof that the parts we bought are the ones that you paid for. Uh, We'll have honest service writers. There'll be uh, no internal tension between the mechanics and the parts department because they're both owners of the business. Uh, And I I just use that as a nice, interesting, and low-tech example of one way we might actually be able to, in a principled and scalable fashion, auto repair is a big-ass business, uh, outcompete game A at its own uh, game by using game B method.
1: Yeah, I, I yeah, and I would love to see I would love to see the game be on a repair. But like I, I love that you know I, I resonate with that a lot. And just just briefly, I think there's a great live example happening right now that that I I'm currently um, working on a, a film about, which is the mainstreaming of psychedelic medicine. Which um, you know so, some people might be aware of, psychedelics have a huge efficacy in in treating mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. And they've been, you know, they were illegal for many years. The last 10 years have seen a lot of research with positive results. And now, this year, there's been four IPOs of psychedelic companies. So now, venture capitalists and big pharma are coming into it. And it's a fascinating case study because you have what is effectively a completely different paradigm and one that's based on completely different values and, and works in a very different way. For example, you have to give people a lot of pre therapy it's a very you have to you know you sit with them in a very uh, carefully contained environment uh, as they go through the process and then you you have to give them a lot of support after that is a completely different model to giving someone an antidepressant pill and so all of these tensions of a game a medical system are now meeting uh, a, a very different paradigm of mental health which involves the community, which involves a completely different, which may well be that a few doses and you don't need the medicine anymore. So that makes it difficult for pharma companies to profit on it. So that's all playing out right now. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I'd encourage people if they're interested in these dynamics to, to kind of pay attention to that because it's going be, to be a crux point between what happens uh, when a completely different modality tries to enter that, that kind of um, entrenched system.
0: Great example. You know, I'm aware of the work on uh, psychedelics or near psychedelics for treating PTSD, for mm-hmm. instance. Right, And again, as you point out, uh, the reason it's so game A is that uh, the pharma companies or, you know, talk therapists, et cetera, are looking to turn people who have conditions into ongoing chronic uh, uh, uh uh, conditions uh, to be able to extract from their wallet in perpetuity while something that, uh, okay, you know, two MDMA pills and uh, you know, two counseling sessions and some connection to a real community uh, solve your problem. There ain't that much profit in it, right? So it's got to have yeah. a different, uh, different driver And the game. A money on money re- uh, return machine rejects these kinds of solutions. And I think that's an excellent example of a potential game B perspective Uh, on that particular uh, situation. Mm. Well, Alexander, we could probably talk for another hour, but I think uh, we we should probably wrap it about here. Any uh, final thoughts?
1: No, no. I think we we covered a lot of ground. I I really enjoyed myself. So yeah, thanks again for the conversation. Yeah,
0: I loved it. It's great. So again, for our listeners, uh, Indigenous narcissism, social media belonging and weirdness on Medium by Alexander Biner and as always the link will be on our episode page at jimrucho.com thanks for listening production services and audio editing by Jared Jane's consulting music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com